Animal Fire Radio. This episode's brought to you by Teledyne Fleer. Teledyne Fleer is the creator of thermal imaging in the fire service. This year, 2023, is the 10th anniversary of the release of their K-Series thermal imaging cameras. Back in 2013, the K-Series was launched to specifically target firefighters and making their job more effective and efficient by using thermal imaging technology. Ten years later, they're bringing so much more to the table with a multitude of cameras that help you on a situational or tactical decision-making. They make a camera for every position on the fire ground. Check out Teledyne Fleer. They bring so much to the table in the world of thermal imaging. And at FDIC this year, 2023, you can find them in booth 443 with Teledyne Gas and Flame, as well as you can find them in their partner's booths, 1201 with Team 3457 with Darley, and of course, you can find them at the Whitmer Fire Store, 110 and 111. Look for Teledyne Fleer this year at FDIC 2023. Ask them to show you the product and talk about thermal imaging because it is the technology that pushes the firefighters forward. Anyway, Teledyne Fleer, a great sponsor and a part of the National Fire Radio platform. This episode's brought to you by the 2448 Podcast. If you're a first responder with an entrepreneurial streak, check out the 2448 Podcast. Hosted by Sam Massa, who built lighting company Hi-Viz LEDs. During his off time, he serves as a volunteer firefighter and professional EMT. Each week, we tell the stories of different first responder-owned businesses, from small startups to food trucks, to companies like National Fire Radio and Fire Department Coffee. Available anywhere you listen to podcasts, go to the2448.com for more information. That's www.the2448.com for more information about this killer podcast. And if you're coming to FDIC this year, join us in booth 13073, right by the entrance in the main hallway where National Fire Radio, yes, us, in conjunction with the 2448 podcast, will be teamed up for live shows throughout the duration of FDIC. It's going to be a killer week out in Indy. Join us at booth 13073 right in the main hallway where you come right into the convention center. We're going to be right there live broadcasting throughout the week. Come see us. Guys, thanks for checking it out. Check out the 2448 podcast. And now, without further ado, the daily episode. Hey everybody, it's Rob, National Fire Radio. I am super excited tonight because I have a person who is very important in my career who's taught me some very, very like, excellent skills, and it's Pete Volkman. Pete, thank you for being on the show tonight. I'm super excited to have you here. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Um, something that you're doing here and asking me to be on. I'm, I'm uh, honored and privileged to work. Uh, talk about and I always can talk about CISN you know that so this is an easy one for me <laughs> so Pete Pete and I met um, at the start of my fire service career uh, and I took a critical incident stress management class and and Pete why don't you kind of like we'll we'll start talking about this and uh, but before we do and jump in give us a little bit of background about who you are for the listeners out there and, uh, and kind of what you're about sure, sure. Um, I'm from New York I uh, grew up in uh, started my life and grew up growing up in Peeksville. Um, my father was a career firefighter. So I kind of grew up in a firehouse going to visit him after school. There were some of the best times. Um, and I think the best memories as a kid is when the uh, the bells went off and it used to be bells way back when. Um, to see him jump on with the other uh, firefighters and just to see that fire engine pull out um, was pretty pretty proud moments to see my dad. Um, take off on a fire call and then I'd call my mom and she'd come down and pick me up and I remember him telling me now lock the doors until your mom gets here you know so uh, so the smell of a engine bay um, just has really really great memories of uh, my dad and, and all the other firefighters uh, from his engine company uh, so I grew up with that and I became an EMT at 18 I started riding ambulances at 16 uh, and uh, just got involved in, in first responder world. I became a police officer at 22 and uh, became a 
volunteer firefighter. And uh, so at this point in my life, I'm just at the end, you got to know when to say when. Um, and I'm, I feel real good of all the things that I've done in first responder world. But it wasn't really till um, 1989 that I took my first CISM course. when it was just a one day course. Um, it was really in the beginnings. And, and that's when I realized, hey, uh, there's a need here um, that's missing. And that's the, the support on how to support one another because uh, uh, it just wasn't there. And back then I was an active drinker. Thank God for friends of uh, Bill W and sobriety. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, and after I took that course, I, I made that decision. You know what? I, I need to go back to school and get my social work degree. Um, thinking, you know, I'll be a mental health professional to help first responders, uh, not knowing how involved I got with the foundation and this whole movement of critical incident stress management um, that began in first responder world uh, and now extends into uh, schools, business, communities. Um, and, and all around the world. Um, so, so that's kind of how I am. I live in Albany, New York now, uh, enjoying my life and uh, still doing CISM courses. I'm on the faculty of the foundation, the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation out of, uh, out of Maryland, Ellicott City, Maryland. Um, and, and still teaching, just like I taught you uh, years and years and years ago, uh, still doing it and uh, having great, uh, value in my life uh, with all the different experiences I had and the disasters I went to and the response I went to as a first responder and all the different things. So uh, so that's kind of who I am um, and still plugging along in, in critical incident stress management. So uh, Pete, 1989, you take your first class. How did you get hooked into that? Like, I mean, I feel like you either lost a bet or something because like you didn't just walk in and like say, or, or was it like just you saw the flyer and you were like, hey, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give this a shot. Because I mean, there had to be a drive or there, there, there was something that got you in your, your butt in that yeah. seat in that classroom, right? Yeah, it probably was my critical incident that changed my life. And I have no problem talking about it. Um, I, I talk about it a lot. And I, I think of, uh, I was right uh, during field training as a police officer. And, and I started in Peaksville, New York. Um, and I remember I was driving with a sergeant on a midnight. It was a snow, snowy, cold, cold night. And we went to a uh, personal injury auto accident. Um, and it was a rollover down a cliff. And it was like a, back then it was called a Jeep CJ7. I think now they call it a renegade. They used to call it a Wrangler or whatever they do. Um, but those, that, those roll bars on those Jeeps are not like NASCAR roll bars. Um, and, and they collapse. And being that I was the EMT, I was able to crawl in and there was an elderly gentleman, an elderly woman still strapped upside down. Uh, and uh, I was able to, the elderly gentleman who's a driver, do a quick primary secondary survey, bumps and bruises, nothing big, able to unclick them, gently get them out, crawled back into the Jeep. And that's when I noticed there was just blood dripping everywhere. It was everywhere. It was just, didn't make sense. So now I'm looking her over doing a primary and then doing a secondary. And I couldn't find the bleed. And I just remember now she was still conscious and alert. She had massive head trauma. Um, you know, so I knew we, we had to expedite and, and move this along. And, and at that point, she said to me, can you say they are a father? And not knowing cortical inhibition syndrome or when you get stressed out, you forget things. I said, I forgot. And that's pretty, pretty important to me because my mom was an ordained deacon in the Episcopalian church. So for me to forget the Our Father is pretty, pretty significant, I'll tell you that. Um, and then she said, I love you, and she died in my arms. Um, still able to get her out. I had some stuff in my eyes, so I went to the hospital, came back from the hospital, uh, and when I walked into the station house, all the other cops knew I was rocked. It, it, this one hit me to the core. Um, they didn't know what to say, and they didn't want to make it worse. So guess what they said and did? Nothing. And here's a 22-year-old kid noticing everyone's just ignoring what just happened and ignoring me. So that's when I was a drinker. I really started to drink. Um, my first marriage um, got really, really bad because of me. Um, and and um, I remember walking into the lieutenant's office, um, Lieutenant Frank Mernon. So, sometimes you just never forget names. And I went, 
uh, Frank, and he was like, excuse me, Officer Volkman? And I said, can, uh, can I have a word with you, sir? Sure, step in my office, close the door. I don't even remember what I said. I was ready to quit. I'm not, I'm drinking too much. I can't get this out of my head. I'm not eating, I'm not sleeping. This job stings, I can't stand it. He listened, then after he listened, um, he wrote a name and number and handed it to me. And I was like, what's that, Lieutenant? He said, this is the personal social worker that I see. I suggest you give this social worker a call. And I was like, Lieutenant Frank Mernon, the rock of this department, the manliest of all men, <laughs> you see somebody? And he was like, you think I take the weight of this municipality on my shoulders all by myself? I suggest you make that phone call. So I did. And I made the appointment and I walked in and the first thing I said was, my whole life is messed up. Everything in my life is messed up, except my sex life. I'm okay there, we don't have to talk about it. And the therapist was like, okay, you can talk about whatever you want, but I'm glad you cleared the air. And the therapist, the counselor changed my life. The therapist said, um, you know, two things. What happened? Why are you here? I thought that was a good question. So I told her my story, like I just told you. But now the second question, nobody asked. So what was the worst part for you as a human being going through this? You see, you thought you heard my worst part of a woman dying in my arms. Uh-uh. I was in EMT mode. I was in cop mode. That was all good. What rocked my world was, if you remember over 30 years ago, they used to call them emergency rooms because it was one big room with 10 beds and 10 curtains. So it was just a bed and a curtain, bed and a curtain, bed and a curtain. Uh, six curtains down or three curtains down, I heard the doctor inform this elderly woman that her, um, his wife of 40 years had passed away. To hear this man's wail of pain is what changed my world. And after that session, the social worker said something to me. Pete, you're unhealthy. You don't need a degree for this. I know what you're doing. As long as you commit to the process, I can coach you through this and you'll get healthy. When will you get healthy? In time, everyone's journey is different. But when you do, both you'll know it and I know. And when you do get healthy, I want you to promise me one thing. I was like, yeah, what? Pass the gift. Gift? I don't have a gift to give somebody. And through all the therapies I went through, that's what motivated me. And all of a sudden, there was this one-day seminar. Um, and I, years later, and, and I was like, well, I got to give it a try. And uh, I gave it a try. I went to that. It made sense. Got involved in the foundation. Became, uh, became an instructor. Uh, became faculty, went on many crises and major, major national crises uh, and, and became, uh, I was for a couple of years, a representative to the United Nations for them as a non-government organization, uh, wrote two courses that are taught uh, in the foundation and created that. Um, and I'll just tell you through the highs of my life, and I've been on the highest of highs and through the lows of my life. And I've been on the lowest of lows human beings can go through um, with, you know, and things happen in life. Uh, I will tell you, CISM still um, keeps me sane. Um, and all the support I get uh, from, from different peers all over the country um, has kept me sane, will keep me sane, and keep me going. So that's kind of my CISM story on, on how did I get involved, so involved in, in critical incident stress management yeah I, I wrote down that you know i put it right here at the top of the notes past the gift because i think that's one of the most powerful things that i've heard when it comes to cism but for for those who are listening what is cism ah that's a good question critical incident stress management um is a uh a step-by-step -step model that you can help someone begin the process of healing. You see, uh, there's a lot of confusion with that in that it's counseling or there, there's more to what it is. Um, and, and all it is is uh, back uh, when Dr. Jeffrey Mitchell was going through his doctor's thesis in uh, human resources, he was a paramedic at a time. He said he tried to devise a model that 
it was this was originally designed for firefighters, believe it or not, a model for firefighters to be able to talk about what they went through um, with the assistance and, and the inclusion of mental health professionals. Because firefighters don't like mental health professionals. It's that simple. Um, why? Because if you are perceived as weak in firefighting, no one will want to work with you unless you get choked up. You know, you might choke up in the next tough situation. So you learn real quick, don't say nothing. And if you got to remember, back in the 70s and 80s, there's a switch because every firehouse, whether it was a volunteer firehouse, whether it was a career firehouse, had a bar and had access to alcohol. Uh, and, and to this day, there are still bars in many firehouses across, across the country. Um, and that was accepted. That's not accepted now. Um, and so there was a whole shift on, on what are we going to do? Um, and so he created this just to get a doctorate thesis, not knowing it would change everything. And it was a beautiful step-by-step -step model that now that is just one intervention of many that we train on. So we started with the debriefing or the CISD, and now we, we have two-day course just on the basic group and a two-day course on individuals in crisis and so many other courses, advanced courses as we learn. And, and we've made mistakes in CISM, and we've learned from that and other teams. So, um, so it's not only is it critical incident stress management, CISM stands for comprehensive, integrative, systematic, and multi-component. So there's much, much more to it than just doing a debriefing. Unfortunately, people think that's all it is. It's not about that. There's a science to it. We've packaged it beautifully for, uh, for those who are trained in it to help other peers, to help the community, um, and to, you know, and to help at, at moments you just never expected to help someone. Um, people have utilized these skills. Um, and so it's just grown and grown and grown into we are uh, now, the foundation is now the largest crisis intervention organization worldwide. We have trained over a million people, which is absolutely unbelievable. A million people in critical incident stress management and how to provide crisis intervention services um, for those who can be in the worst moments of their lives. So that's kind of CISM and the history and, and how it grew out. Yeah, and I, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording and I was telling Pete about being out in Vegas after the shooting that happened there and doing a debriefing with an Uber driver because this guy, you know, the city was reeling from this attack and they went to the hospital that I think it was like drop off food. And then he ended up getting sucked in there for like six hours, uh, handing the phone to, to patients and victims of the shooting who, when the bullets started flying in that fight or flight, literally dropped everything they had to make themselves as light as possible, ran from the scene, were hit by gunfire, and nobody knew if they were alive or dead because there were so many victims that, you know, that process of saying like, hey, what's your name? Pete Volkman. All right, what's your address? Blah, blah, blah. That didn't happen. So he sat there in these rooms and listened to these phone calls as people used his phone. And I mean, at this point, I think that I, I'm sure it was the fall festival and it was January when I and he had been holding this in. Mm. And just to be able to open up that um, conduit of information. And that's why, like I know myself, I've done this before with first responders, but it was the first time to do it with somebody who was just a civilian mm. who, who, I mean, he very much became his own first responder in that moment, but just incredibly powerful. Um, when it comes to CISM, and as we're talking about this, what do you think people get wrong about it? Whether it's a preconceived notion or just in general, you're like, nope, that's not what this is. Yeah, and, and I think there would, if you look at the history of CISM, so CISM started for um, first responders and they took to training. Um, and some mental health did, they saw the value in it. Um, but it, it really didn't go anywhere because it worked. Um, mm -hmm. Then it grabbed, then the CISM world expanded into the military. And if you got to remember, the first responder world and the military, both worlds deal with blood, guts, gore, brains, um, deals with death. Um, so, People sit in a circle and someone has to ventilate the blood, the guts are going to brains. It doesn't traumatize anybody else. It's just part of the culture in dealing with that. 
Then what happened was CISM expanded into schools and into communities and into the workplace. And so people were sitting in this debriefing and as someone had to ventilate the blood that got to go in the brains, other participants became traumatized hearing that story. And that's when we realized, okay, the, in, the design of the CISD, the debriefing was for first responders. It wasn't designed for civilians, just like uh, you, you, you met someone. Um, it works and you found that out. It works for civilian world and it works very well. But the application, there are other group interventions that would be more appropriate. We learned that. That was part of the learning process as we grow. Um, and, but still, people, so, so it went into that. Now, when it went to schools and workplace and communities, um, it, it, all of a sudden, people, there was a lot of money, and money changes everything, right, for trainings. Not that I think there's anything wrong as a trainer getting paid for it. But there were grants. There were people who were designated. Um, county coordinators, all kinds of stuff like that, and jobs came about. So then what happened was, at that point, people started asking, um, prove it. You see, when it was in the first responder world, you didn't have to prove it. We watched it work. It works. When it was in the military world, it was working. But now you get into that civilian world of schools and, and right. communities or workplace. Um, that's a mental health thing. And guess what? In the mental health world, they don't agree on anything. Um, just take depression. What is the one thing we need to do with depression that all mental health professionals feel that's the way to deal with depression? They don't agree. Look at PTSD. There's, there's different viewpoints and different researches that any type of intervention or treatment process, they don't agree. So that's kind of normal in the mental health world. But when it got back into the first responder military world, that just scared them. And so there were these different notions, is it effective or not? Is it effective? Um, and quite frankly, um, there was not a lot of research and the foundation was not looking to research and prove it. We since do have research. The other thing about CISM, they think it's a treatment. There's this notion that we're some type of treatment. No, we're a wellness. We're just allowing people to ventilate. The three things that work in resiliency um, is caring attachments, a sense of mastery and a sense of meaning. And so when you get traumatized, um, two things happen. You stop doing things you enjoy and you feel detached from the world. So what CISM training does is it brings caring attachments back. So you have a sense of non-detachment just by somebody listening to their story and just providing some quick feedback and possibly a referral saying, hey, yeah, maybe you need some more help. So the design of the CISD and the design of all CISM group interventions is to identify those few who normally wouldn't reach out for help. Because not everybody needs formal help, but we want to bring them together in a sense of caring attachments to, do, to be able to identify those. And people realize, yeah, I may need more help. And that's what appears about. But you saw with that, uh, that driver, the taxi driver. All you, all you offered was caring attachments to listen to his story because he, he didn't think anybody would understand. He probably found out you were a firefighter and then he, well, this guy would understand. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and so it was that caring attachments and taking time to listen to him. So what we did, what the foundation did was put a step-by-step -step models to help you, the interventionist, feel more comfortable. And, and um, so caring attachments, a sense of mastery, getting back in control, and a sense of meaning, which is your why. Now, we don't really find that, usually find a sense of meaning and, and even a sense of mastery, but we always provide caring attachments. And, and those three things will propel post-traumatic growth or uh, propel resiliency. And, and it's, it's really pretty simple. I, you uh, have said this res resiliency a couple of times, and I, I remember in our initial training, um, just like really just being hit with this informational brick on resiliency, because sometimes it almost feels, especially in today, that we're taught that we are not resilient, but human beings are incredibly resilient. And there was, I, I can't remember how you put it, but there was a, like almost like a resiliency cycle of kind of going through trauma. And I, I, I'm, 
I, I feel like I'm butchering this right now and I'm stumbling over my words, but like <laughs> humans are, human beings are, are, there's some kind of natural resiliency built in, but like, can you kind of hit on that a little bit? I don't know if I've made sense or if I've just confused myself into a paper bag with two ends on it. No, that's okay. No, we're good. We're good. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, I, I think there's a couple things with what you were talking about, a couple thoughts game. Number one is, um, when we do interventions, really what we're looking for is, a, is an opportunity for a reinterpretation of that event. See, it's not the event that ruins your life. Correct. It's your response. Um, that is, uh, so, so you, have a res- you have an event, an incident, an experience. Uh, you have an interpretation of that. From that interpretation, you have both physical reactions and you have psychological and emotional reactions. Those reactions is what may may cause PTSD, depression, anxiety, you name it. So what happens is when we reprocess it and put it to words, what we're doing is we're giving them an opportunity to have a possible reinterpretation of that event. And sometimes someone tells their story and all that it needs is someone to say, wow, those reactions you had were normal reactions to an abnormal situation. I have seen many people all of a sudden, or I'll say to them, you're still in survival mode. You haven't clicked back to normal. So you're, you're, you think you're normal, and that's why it's not syncing up in your life right now, because you've clicked into survival mode and you haven't clicked back. Um, so that's the other piece. Um, and and the, the, what you were talking about, too, is what distinguishes us are words. What do I mean? When the most primitive part of your brain is the uh, brainstem and the midbrain. The brainstem has everything to do with body functioning, you know, your heart rate, breathing rate, body temperature. Um, your midbrain has everything to do with memory retention, specifically the amygdala and the hippocampus. That midbrain and brainstem is also known as reptilian brain. You see, reptiles in a crisis don't care about anything but themselves. They don't care about their other reptilian friends in a crisis. They don't care about their family members in a crisis. All they care about is self-preservation. What's an example of a person in reptilian brain? A person in reptilian brain is someone who's drowning. If someone is drowning and thinks they're going to die, they don't care about the people around them. They don't care about their family members. They're about, they think they're about to die. They're surviving. They're thrashing about. They're trying to swim. They're trying to gasp for air as they're going under. Right? You can't logically reason with them. That's why when lifeguards are trained, they're trained not to swim up to someone who's drowning and say, relax your body, just reach your hand to me, I'll pull you out of the riptide, all good. No, what are lifeguards trained? Don't even talk to them. Go right up behind them and grab them. You can't reason with them. So when people are in reptilian brain in a crisis, you can't talk to them. They're totally emotional. They're, they're in survival. Then the brain developed into the mammalian brain. Mammals need each other to survive. So when the zebras are out zebraing, do whatever zebras do, I don't know, make them happy, right? And all of a sudden, the zebras see a uh, pack of lions come at them, and and they go to the flight response. We all seen this on National Geographic Channel, right? And, and so they start to run away, but they've learned this. They can't stay alone. They need to pack it in as a group to survive because the lions can't jump in the middle of that. They'll be trampled to death. And in case you didn't know, the black and white stripes on zebra when they pack it in as a group, move in such a way that it throws off that perception of lions. So lions had to adapt and they figured this out. We'll just keep following the group and wait for that one little one who can't keep up due to injury or they're just too small and they can't endure, continue running. And what do they do? They separate them. And well, we all know what happens on National Geographic. This episode's brought to you by Fast Rescue Solutions. Fast Rescue Solutions was created with the mission to develop products and training that surpass currently accepted industry standards and that meet the operational challenges of the real world. Their mission is, always has been, and it always will be to revolutionize rescue and save lives. Fulfilling both the mission and the vision, the Fast Board is a disruptive technology in rescue. Invented by 28-year Philadelphia firefighter Eric Allen, who has over 20 years in the Philadelphia Fire Department Special Operations Unit. Nationally, the average time for rescuing a downed firefighter is 15 to 20 minutes using five or more members. 
The fast board has the ability to reduce that time to five minutes or less using only two to three members, which is 500 times faster than the national average. Originally designed to get a fired down firefighter down and out of a basement, the fast board has been proven effective in nearly every rescue situation. RIT can find space, trench and ice water rescue, hazmat, mass casualty, and the list goes on and on. Its simplicity and versatility make it a game changer. I've been calling it a game changer for the last five years, and it truly is changing the way firefighter removal and rescue and civilian rescue is being done. Come find them at FDIC. Uh, they'll be at booth 13120 in the Capitol Corridor. Also this year, it's known as Firefighter Road. There's a ton of firefighter-owned businesses out in that Capitol Corridor. That's where you want to be, supporting our own. Stop in and see the crew from the Fast Rescue Solutions for live demos and meet the tribe. Their tribe, there's nothing better than that. This is tried and true brothers and sisters that are into the game, and they are making the job better join them wednesday thursday and friday of fdic week from three to five in the main corridor and you can have a cold one with them for happy hour come down meet the crew let them know who you are and let them show you why they're changing the game fast rescue solutions changing the game in the way we're protecting our own and the civilians we're sworn to protect check them out um, so what's an example of humans in mammalian, in mammalian brain there's a line of duty death in a firehouse. As firefighters find out, they come in off duty and they just show up saying this, I just heard about the line of duty death in our agency. Um, I just had to come here. I don't know why I need to be here. I just need to be here and I don't know why. Oh, now we know why. You went into the reptilian brain of survival. When you found out about the line of duty death, you wanted to be with your pack, pack it in, caring attachments, there we go. So. That's where we do group work in CISF. Now, expand the brain into the human brain. What distinguishes us? Words. Words are controlling to us. So what we try to do in interventions um, is help people with words. So someone may not need the intervention, but they show up and they may have really good words as a coworker to help put it together and make sense. You see, if you ask simply, what is CISM and what do peer support teams do? It's simply this sentence. Peer support teams help people find words to indescribable experiences and words to indescribable reactions as a result of those experiences. Because once we find words, we take control. There's the sense of mastery I was talking about earlier. So we have caring attachments, finding words to an indescribable experience besides that was just all effed up and I'm all effed up. And now we are starting to get a sense of mastery and control. You know, I, I always think that when I, you know, when I, one of the back pocket skills that I've told people in the past when we, when I've done one-on-ones is I said like, Hey, look, your ability to put a word to this, once you've said that, man, I'm, you know, and it could be just something people will make up. So I'm uncomfortable with this accident that happened because I felt helpless. Now, like before you had that moment, that radar scope was completely filled with static. But the minute that we start getting words out and we start taking ownership of it, we, uh, well, we, we then we own own the, the issue. The issue doesn't own us. I mean, that's a very simplified way of putting it, and that's not going to be a 100% every time, obviously, but... Um, words are, words matter. Absolutely. If, if you can't put it to words, you can't put it to rest. It's that simple. It's that simple. So that's where we want to bring people together to find words. And if someone's a non-group person and they really don't like groups and being in groups, let alone asking a question or expressing themselves, that's why we give an opportunity for private one-on-ones after every group intervention. Because we take into account the non-group people who may need to process that event and find the words privately with a peer, a trained peer in CISM or a mental health professional or a chaplain. Um, because really the team is made up of peers, mental health and chaplains and other professions coming in just to hear the story. And it's the, the, the peer aspect of this, like I cannot 
overstate this enough. That is what I think for all of us in emergency services, we get our strength from because this is not, you know, Susan down at the DMV and, you know, Bill over from accounting coming up. Like these are people who have kind of walked our shoes. They, they, you know, their, their turnout gear might be a little bit different, but they've kind of had the same, uh, a similar experience and that commonality of putting a code on, a code on and answering the call kind of thing. And that really is, is important for, especially when we're talking about the stuff that we're talking about. Oh, absolutely. And that's where the expansion, the design of CISM was for firefighters. Then we realized, wow, there's police officers, EMS workers, dispatchers. Then we realized, wow, um, emergency departments are a lot like first responders, medevac crews. And we just kept, then we started expanding on, wow, this is happening in schools and government agencies. Mm -hmm. They're having critical incidents and they need to find a way to come together um, through caring attachments um, and, and, a, and a design to be able to talk about something I can't put words to and I can't put words and I can't describe what's going on within me. Um, and so, because what happens with people is, uh, I, you know, I have these feelings. I don't like these feelings. All right. Then I, I can't get rid of these feelings. And now something's wrong with me because I can't get rid of these feelings. And, and now because I can't get rid of these feelings and something's wrong with me, I'm bad. There we go. Right. <laughs> it's just, and it's just a progression. Um, and so what did we used to do in the history of firefighters? We numbed it. We numbed it with alcohol. Uh, and anybody who's an old-time firefighter with 25 more years will tell you it's a lot different today than it was when they were rookies and there were firefighters with 25 years on, how they handled calls. We're in different times. Um, and even with uh, technology, it's changing everything. I, I hear like young young ones say, oh, it's more stressful. And uh, than it, than it being a firefighter, police officer, EMS worker, it's more stressful today as a first responder than it was when you started, Pete, over 35 years ago. I go, no, it's not. You know what the difference is today? Today, we're hearing about line of duty deaths across the country and critical incidents across the country we didn't even know existed 30 years ago due to social media. So yeah. we're getting inundated with all these horrific events that are part of the human process and part of humanity. Um, and all of a sudden we think this is happening all the time. Then what happens is once you get inundated, you go into survival mode and you put up a wall, you know, a buffer. Um, and then it seems like it's normal. It's just the way it is. And, and so now violence today, um, the level of violence for us to get affected by. Um, I, I would love to have people back in the 18, 1900s watch movies today and the real, the realism that is expected in movies on blood, guts, gore, and brains um, today, compared to back in the days with, you know, people getting shot and they would just fall down. You know, war movies were kind of like that. It was just, oh, and they just fall down and you know they got shot and they died. Now, we're, we're watching graphic, graphic, um, you know, violence. Um, that's expected to be a good movie. Um, I, I bet you people watching movies from, you know, the 60s, 1960s would be mortified to sit in a movie theater to watch the things that are happening. So our, our level of tolerance for violence is just growing and escalating and escalating and escalating and escalating. And we're just getting inundated 24-7 um, with information and with horrific events and negativity that is affecting us as a community. Whether we like it or not, it's just affecting us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I often think back of... Saving Private Ryan, and I realized that Vietnam vets that I knew watched that movie, and I saw that mm. change in them. And that was like I, I remember I asked one of them. I was like, "Hey, are you okay?" He's like, "No." Like that that scene, that opening scene, brought him back to combat. And the only time I saw in my life of of Vietnam flashback, if you will, was a gentleman on a very hot humid night with mosquitoes that was his trigger and he he broke down and it was it was okay like that that's a human experience right there he went through you know but like for for somebody to come into a movie theater sit down pay the admission ticket and then all of a sudden need to be calling the va helpline because it was so quote-unquote good that 
it tricked them right into that, uh, you know, that event and it brought them right back. Yeah. I, I think, I think you have something there. Do, you know, do we, do we need all that? And, and now it's about um, getting your 15 minutes of fame on social media. So what do you have to do? Outrageous things. Right. Uh, you know, and, and um, we just have a lack of kindness now, uh, you know, and, and a lack of forgiveness. Um, but I always think that to get the forgiveness, um, there's a ladder to forgiveness and it all begins with kindness. If you're not a kind person, you can't forgive. So the first level towards forgiveness is kindness. Then the next level towards forgiveness is compassion for others. Then once we have kindness and compassion for others, then we can have understanding. Once we have compassion, kindness, and understanding, now we can get to the level of forgiveness. But right now, there's no kindness and there's no compassion for others. Yeah. You know, and, and and if you... We're not, let alone forgiving somebody. And, and people don't want to understand another person. Right. And and you carry... like I, I think one thing that I've kind of learned now at this point in my life is when you carry all of this stuff, it's very much like having a backpack full of bricks. And if you don't, if you don't get there, you're going to think this is going to wear you out because it doesn't get any lighter. Nope. No. So absolutely. If we were kind of like going back to the CISM stuff here for a minute and like, a, you know, like I'll, I'll say like a debriefing, there might be somebody listening who, you know, hits this podcast. Uh, I'll just call it on a fateful day because they may have gone through a traumatic experience. There may be a debriefing coming up. Uh, but they're hesitant to to go. What is? I don't. I don't want to say like let's give away the secret here, but like there because there really are no secrets. But what 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 is it to like? What would you say from your point? Somebody should expect walking into a, a debriefing. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, if you're walking into a group intervention, besides the debriefing, there's other interventions. So there's two ways. You may walk into an intervention where there's a circle of chairs. Um, there's two interventions that do that. There's two other interventions where you walk in, it's more like a town hall meeting. So you can have that expectation that whether you do the chairs or the meeting is a result of the trained CISM team making that determination of me for the agency. Um, one thing about it is if you don't wanna talk, you don't have to. Uh, and uh, so the team will get together, they'll start it off, introduce themselves. Um, so you kind of get to know who they are, why, they're coming into your house. It's only courteous to introduce yourself. Um, and then they may ask a couple questions. Most of the questions are, hey, what happened? What do you notice about yourself? That's a, you know, the major parts if you're in the circle. And they sit back and listen to you. Um, and and they, they may ask, you know, what, what's your worst part? S some people talk, some people don't. Um, but they still get something out of it. And then once you help the team have an understanding of this, this fuzzy picture um, that with other people now, it's not as fuzzy, it's starting to get a little clearer. Now it gets clear for the CISM team to have an understanding. Now they can provide you with some psychoeducation or stress management tips. And research and studies that we have have showed um, that helps that resiliency um, and that post-traumatic growth. Now, do people still have problems yet? We identify those who may need some other type of formal help um, or follow-up. Also, people are identified by their peers um, that were on the scene. Um, and it's amazing how those peers watch out for one another. Um, you know, so, so there's, a, there's a, a lot of good that comes from that. Well, what are you doing? Putting words to indescribable experience and putting words to indescribable reactions as a result of that experience. So if you go the other way, you'll go into a, uh, uh, a town hall meeting, you'll either be sitting or standing, the team gets, gets up in front of you, um, and they just provide you with information, almost like an informational type of briefing. What's the information? This is the facts, we have, they'll bring a facts person. Here's the facts of what we know so far, just to stop the rumors or whatever you're hearing on social media. Um, and, and then they'll tell, here's some uh, normal signs and symptoms you may or may not have. And here's some resources to be aware of to help yourself begin the process of healing. Then they ask her any questions about the facts or about stress management. After that, it ends. Um, but after each of those group interventions, there's private one-on-one -on -one times. So if you're a non-group person and you really don't want to talk, guess what? You can wait till the, till the end because um, we usually have some 
food and, and beverages, and we just have informal one-on-ones for non-group people, or people just need to talk a little more as they process that. Um, and then after that, everybody goes home. So all those interventions kind of kind of the same, um, except for the town hall meetings, it's more of talking, and then there's a Q&A, a question and answer portion um, that you can ask a question. In the circle, there's much more interaction between the participants. The team asks a question and just sits back and listens. The team asks another question, sits back and listens. And it's amazing to watch how people process together. And you, yeah. as, you're, as an interventionist, you can see their physical change as they came in and as they went out. It's almost magical. It really is. You, you've seen that, Rob. That, yeah. It's almost magical. But like, I, I was just going to say, for the known to the unknown, for everybody listening, like we talked about before, like there's the physical effects and the psychological effects. And I wrote down um, tunnel vision as a physical effect because yep. like I remember a fatal fire I went to in Fairview and I had vision of the fire and I had auditory exclusion. I heard nothing unless I was looking at it. If I looked at the handle of the pump and I pulled that handle, I heard it clank out. And I only heard people talking to me when I made direct eye contact with them. Then afterwards was the closing my eyes and going to sleep at night and seeing all of those events or you know, seeing a red ribbon and just having that emotionally come over me. Um, but when we're in that circle, and every like you know, the, the participation is is like you said, you don't have to say anything. But like, it's that magical moment where, if I had that tunnel vision, you might say, "Rob, I saw you stretch that line, and I was just so relieved that you were there because you thought of that clutch move," and I was. Man, I was just so happy that you were there. And it's that moment where somebody goes, holy crap, I didn't even realize I did that because I was in that, you know, tunnel vision mode or, or that, you know, having that physical reaction to this abnormal situation. And it's almost like a way of like starting to put the pieces together. And like you said, it's just it is magical to watch it. And we've seen it so many times of the group taking care of each other, the group talking about it, painting the picture and us just kind of letting them I mean, really, we don't do, we do a lot, but we don't do a lot. We don't do a lot. Right, right. Now, we, we used to have debriefings at the bar, at the firehouse, or right. in the kitchen table for career firefighters, but there's not even enough time for that. Because when my father was a firefighter, there was no EMS involved. So they didn't go out on runs as much as they do now. You know, I'm sure where you are, the, the, the call volume has increased dramatically with the inclusion of EMS. Um, and, and so there isn't that downtime together. So that's why there needs to be more formalized, yeah. um, you know, type of just to sit down. What I find is after decades on the, on the team I'm, I'm on, um, agencies don't call us anymore. Why? Because they naturally come together in a circle and they're talking about because they've learned through us over the years and the many times we've been there, hey, okay, you just ask these questions. Um, and, and they're very supportive and very aware of that. And I'm finding that uh, folks that, that were into, had, had interventions 10, 15 years ago are now, as firefighters, are now in administration. And so they, it's normal now because it's been there for 20 years in the agency it's, it's, it's not a big deal. Yeah, let's call the peer support team. In. It, it's that normalcy of, yeah, we need to talk about it. this one's messed up. It's messed me up. Let's talk about it. Um, so I see a huge change in CISM as a result of that. But I also see with CISM, um, social media and, uh, uh, you know, COVID and, and the isolation. We're, we're, mm -hmm. still, we're still reeling from that. Yeah. Um, there, there's more to COVID psychologically and emotionally. And it's, it's, I see that more in the healthcare because people are still dying. The number one cause of death in America still is COVID. And so hospitals know that. Um, so there are still an operations mode. They haven't taken a breath yet. And I foresee uh, a huge ramifications once they come out of operations mode, psychologically and emotionally. Yeah, I think the, I mean, I, like this would be anecdotal for me, but just watching our American public react to airline travel mm -hmm. and prior to COVID, I don't think we, I, I don't remember 
seeing these kind of outbursts that we, you know, like to the point that we're seeing now. And it's just the only thing I can say is that, hey, before COVID, this wasn't a thing. Like there were people who were jerks and stuff, but like not. We, we weren't duct taping people to chairs in an aircraft because they were so unruly. Absolutely. We were Absolutely. not assaulting airline employees. Absolutely. And that's that's the that's why I think there's still more to COVID coming. Um, that isolation, the lack of the sense of caring attachments for so long, I think has long-term ramifications to us as, as a society. Um, and the first way to bring it back is we got to bring back kindness and compassion. We're not even at understanding one another. If, if for whatever reason, there's something about you I don't like, I don't want to understand your, your, your story. I don't want to understand your, so we got to go further from that, not even forgiveness or understanding. Let's get to kindness and compassion. Um, and let's just get to being kind to one another. Um, I, I see that huge change. So that in itself, even being a firefighter, um, you know, it's, it's not what it used to be. So, and, and it, there's an era in firefighter where everything's changing. My father was in the, in the sixties, um, when there was civil unrest and, you know, cities were burning, you know, it was just, that was, he used to go on and, and the cops would call him saying, uh, they're, you know, they're going to burn down this building tonight. And so they knew they were going out. Um, and so that was the era. And I, uh, for me in the eighties was the crack epidemic that was just devastating to communities. Um, and, and so we did, then we had nine 11, um, you know, in the two thousands when the, what it was terrorism was the big stressor, huge was terrorism. Um, and now we're getting into social media and, um, that age of social media and the COVID, those years of COVID, I think, are affecting firefighting, EMS, and law enforcement. 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, like, uh, well, actually, I just wanted to circle back to something with the, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there, with the, with the with the debriefings and stuff and all these things, like how, how important is a senior man or the senior person of these EMS organizations when it comes to success with helping out our fellow uh, emergency responders? Yeah, I, I think um, what's changed is there's a lot of um, mature not old timers. I didn't say old timers, everybody. They're mature, um, you know, personnel that have years on, have learned how to deal with the challenges professionally, emotionally, and psychologically. Uh, but what I'm, I'm seeing is there's a huge difference in generation processing, where the younger generation views the world differently and processes differently. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. And so I see a disconnect um, that's happening with those who have quite a few years on compared to those coming in. Different view of the world because how they grew up and how they learned this world was a different world than for me growing up uh, in the 70s and in the 80s. Um, it's very different. So um, I see that. So, you know, I see a frustration with, with uh, mature members not understanding the generation coming in um, and that's creating a stress so what do we do bring them together in a circle after a critical incident and talk about it because that old timer can give some great advice on healthy ways to deal with it and how that you know how they made it through um, and uh, every old timer will always say this you got to talk about it to somebody you trust you gotta well, let it out and that's exactly it, Pete. And I think that's the, the, the point that I was hoping, and you, you delivered perfectly on that, was for our senior men or senior members of the departments to participate in in these critical incident stress management briefings because like, it's just so pivotal to have them. They're almost like a cornerstone of, of this to make it work. Yep. And every person starting in their career always has the one person they look up to you know, that mature person. Um, absolutely. But I just see that the differences on how they view the world is, is causing a rift. Yeah. So that's why it's really important for the, the mature 
firefighters to go there even though they don't need it. Um, and even though that the young ones may perceive firefighter differently, they perceive the, the world differently, they can still help in that critical incident and processing that event. Well, Pete, we've been going on for just about 50 minutes here. Wow. Um, I know you were worried that we would get five minutes out, but um, <laughs> we're wrap, wrapping up. Like, what what did we miss tonight, or what is there something that you want to kind of end on as far as uh, something that we might just not have come up in the conversation? Or I, I think that if someone's listening to this and they realize, well, I got unprocessed stuff, I need to process out with somebody. Um, you always can call the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation. Um, and, uh, or it's www.icisf, right, um, dot org. Um, and it has all their contact information. Um, they can help you find local peer support teams that are CISM trained. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you could do a one-on-one with it because you may not even realize there's a peer support team, maybe right around the corner from you or even in, in your jurisdiction. Uh, there's, there's many, many teams, many teams, registered teams at the foundation. So there is a network for you to get in. There's also other great organizations. There's chaplain units. Um, there's other great crisis organizations for firefighters um, and uh, helping firefighters. Uh, but the key is finding access into the system you need to begin your process of healing. You see, because if you're gonna contact CISM teams, we're not gonna heal you. We're gonna help you begin that process of healing through assess, refer, assess, refer, assess, refer. That's what we do all the time. Um, so the first step towards healing is real is beginning that first step. So we help people with the first steps. Uh, so that's an important thing. So if, if something's bothering you or you just wanna talk to somebody, you can contact uh, the foundation, www.icisf or International Critical Incident Stress Foundation.org. Um, you could get a hold of them. They're out of Ellicott City, Maryland. Uh, so, so that's an important thing. And and and, um, and I think too, Pete, just to jump on the tail end of that, if you are retired and you've made it, congratulations first and foremost. But let's say you're not in your like you know like a lot of people up here in New York, they move down south. Like that's a great resource because now that you have nothing but time on your hands and that bell's not going off, I I always think of uh, like emptying out that desk drawer on your last day of work. Like you're doing that with your your brain kind of, and if you start feeling this, like it's a great resource because it doesn't have to be in the state you're in. You can wherever you end up, like I said, there can be somebody right around the corner to help you out if you need it. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and even within the foundation teams, if there's a specialty like. Um, you're in the military, uh, we can help you find access through the VA programs. There's so many great programs, PTSD programs, trauma programs, um, you know, recovery groups. Um, there's a lot now, and, and it's about peers for caring attachments. So uh, there, there is help for you, and, and, and don't cry alone. Uh, I, I think that's the important thing. Um, there's someone willing to walk with you in your journey of recovery. Um, but once we realize we're not alone, that's half the battle. That's really half the battle. Yeah. Pete, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at uh, my, probably the best thing is to email me at PF Oakman. That's uh, Peter, Frank, Victor, Ocean, Lincoln, King, Mary, Adam, Nancy, Nancy at Fairpoint, F-A-I-R-P-O-I-N-T dot net. Um, and that's the, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Um, you also, uh, can get a hold of me on my, uh, webpage, uh, PeteVSeminars.com. That's Pete V as in Victor seminars, all one word with an S seminars.com. And, uh, you can get a hold of me there, kind of see, uh, what I do with CISM and the different, uh, trainings and, uh, what I do. So, um, that's the best bet. Pete, thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. I, I really, this is, uh, you get to do a lot of cool things, but to, to do an interview with somebody who was so pivotal in my career, I, I cannot uh, thank you enough for being here today. Well, great. I'm glad you passed the gift. You got it. You understood it. Pete, stick around for a second. I'm going to take us out yep. here. Yep. 
Everybody, this is Rob, National Fire Radio. Thank you for joining me tonight. This has been a great episode with Pete Wolfman. Uh, Pete gave us where to find him. We're going to put uh, some of his contact information and his website in the description of the show. Thank you for joining us. This is Rob, National Fire Radio. We'll see you guys out there. National Fire Radio.